from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. Good morning. <laughs> this is Michelle. Messing with the sound guy. <laughs> and this is Mark. <laughs> We're going to call this the Under the Weather edition of the Tiny House Podcast. I've been sick before on this show. I'm not actually sick. It's like the back end of it all. But I'm snotty like our other it business is, partner. It, yes. <laughs> you got the snots. You got the green 11s. Yes. It's amazing that Mark has, I in the in the almost 10 years I've known Mark, Sir Booger, nope. in, in 10 years that I've known Mark, I have seen you sick only once. Oh, last year? Yeah. When I was sick like a dog. You were sick like a dog, yeah. Miss Disneyland, that was a drag. Mm -hmm. So, quick question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who here gets flu shots, and if so, or if not, why not? Just out of curiosity. I just don't think they're necessary. Just out of curiosity. I haven't done it in many years. Really? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I... (coughs) What I did have last year wasn't really the flu, I don't think, anyway. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I get them if my wife makes me. (laughs) 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 So, you know, our kids get them, and... We make sure our moms get them, but I kind of like the pair. I don't think they're huh. Interesting. I don't either. Interesting you, if there's any. Um, I get them if they're free and convenient, mm. a.k.a. if they offer them at work and if I happen to be at work that day and they're like, hey, come get a flu shot. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. But what's <laughs> but way, what's way more interesting than that, actually, is the fact that last year was the first year I haven't had one um, in probably, I don't know, five or six years. Remember last year when That's I thought I was right. going to die yeah. for like 10 days? <laughs> um, don't know that it was the flu, but it was maybe. Of course, I yeah, also traveled. Yeah. I've traveled a fair bit this year. So um, maybe next year now my, my um, immune system will be absolutely concrete, having exposed myself to all those international germs. Yeah. Ugh. If it's free, you'll get it. So if it's offered to you, you'll take it. Exactly. Like a drug dealer's dream. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I think the flying in airplanes is supposedly supposed to be very, very, you know, those filters are not that great and they're not replaced that often. And and, um, I see a lot of people flying these days with actually masks on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that too. Which is kind of creepy, actually. (laughs) When I got back from Africa, I would get sick a lot. Oh, yeah, really? just just like almost the week after. Well, because you're spending you know 14 or 16 hours in a plane, yeah. you're just breathing that air. Yeah, you're just yeah. inundated <laughs> by everybody's germs that your immune system is just not just not exposed to, not exactly. prepared to handle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of airplanes, see, wow. I set you up for that one. <laughs> Boom! I set you up for that one. So Bruce Campbell, our guest today, is living in an airplane. It's a 727-200. Uh, uh, and he also speaks Japanese, so apparently. So I'm going to open the show with Ohio Gozaimas, Bruce-san. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Ohio Gozaimas. Does Perry speak Japanese? Long time ago, I used to, but I don't anymore. Oh. <clears throat> Why not? It's been so long since I've used it. I, it's just kind of kind of faded away. Hey, Bruce. I hate yeah. to ask you to do this, but, well, no, I don't really. No, really. Can, can you say, please, we need to have that little pause in between us so we can use it, but can you say... In Japanese, um, welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Um, this is Bruce Campbell with. Are you sure it's not you're listening? You're listening. Yeah, you're listening to. Yeah, you're listening to. Yeah, you're. Oh, 
You want to start that it's over again? It's going to be again? Japanese. Nobody, uh, <laughs> only the Japanese <laughs> listeners can understand. You're listening to the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Bruce Campbell with AirplaneHome.com. Well, I'll, I'll give it a try. My Japanese is awful. It's, it's truly hideous. We won't know any different. So and it can't be any worse than Perry's, <laughs> exactly. apparently. Exactly. Shove a chopstick up here and we wouldn't even know. So. <laughs> okay, give, give, give it to me in English again, please. Okay. You're listening to the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Bruce Campbell with AirplaneHome.com or, or whatever company you want to you know, mention. Okay. Anato wa chisai ie no podcast kikimasu. Watashi wa Bruce Campbell desu. Thanks. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Yay. Really? Your ramen will be here in 10 minutes. <laughs> 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 Golf clap. Yeah. So, Bruce, you're a, you're a pretty big um, uh, internet sensation, or at least you have been, because of this airplane. Tell us about how you ended up with this thing, and where, where in, it, this is in Oregon, right? Exactly, yes. And, and how, did, how did this come about? Well, it was, um, it was just a, a personal, practical approach to resolving a need for a home. I purchased rural property in Oregon when I was about 23 years old and didn't want to carry a mortgage all my life. Mm -hmm. So I uh, bought a very inexpensive mobile home actually before I bought the rural property and moved it onto the property from, uh, from a trailer home park in Beaverton and simply lived in it frugally for decades until finally I had accumulated enough cash to, to be able to buy a home outright. And by that time in my life, I didn't feel constrained to doing the provincial thing. I, I was a more seasoned engineer, um, and I looked at the um, at, at at the option of of uh, establishing a home as uh, through an engineer's eyes. That, that is, I considered it not as uh, as a as a, as a challenge of doing what everybody else did, but rather as as, as a, a new challenge a new venture um, I'm sorry I'm not articulating this well but I, I considered it as an engineer what what is the best way to resolve this need what kinds of materials do I want what sort of environment do I want should I follow the old patterns or should I consider new options and I considered new options how did you how did you uh, how did you get from um, the mobile home that you purchased to an airplane, though? I mean, why? Wh I, and, and, you know, engineers, I've spoken with a lot of engineers lately, and there is this kind of peculiar approach to living. It's like they see everything as a problem that can be solved with some sort of engineering. It sounds like you're coming from the same place. So how did you get from the mobile home to an airplane as opposed to just a bigger mobile home or something else? Well, the mobile home was a, a fiscal tool. It, it was a means of being able to shelter myself and provide my basic needs without spending any more money than necessary. The, the mobile home itself was purchased used. It was very cheap when I purchased it, and I, I nurtured as much life out of it as I possibly could. Um, so it, it addressed my living needs with an eye to the future um, as opposed to my final nest needs, which I viewed as being... An, uh, a, a more permanent structure. That, that is, the, the mobile home was intended to be just temporary so as to save money, mm -hmm. whereas my final nest, I, I wanted to be far more permanent and and more of a uh, more supportive of, of the things that I wanted in life. And so they, they, they really serve two different needs Got because it. of the you know, timing. Okay. And that, you know, the permanent home equaled for you an airplane. 
Well, it did. I, I uh, considered the engineering elements of an aerospace solution to the uh, to the need and and found them superior to anything else I could uh, I could imagine. Uh, a geodesic dome entered the picture for a while, and had I constructed one, it would have been out of um, aluminum and glass or or more modern materials that could last a long time. But um, I, I settled on aerospace technology. It was readily available, um, immensely strong, and and remarkably well designed. It, um, it it seems to me that aircraft jetliners in particular provide more engineering punch per buck by far than any other structure which is of a size that we can live in, um, and and they're readily available. So um, my my sense was that it was the ideal solution and. And once the idea congealed in my mind, it was a slam dunk. And there was no question that it was the right approach to me. Now, when you say readily available, I picture you walking up to the gate at an airplane going, you got one of those things hanging in back? Sure. <laughs> yeah, Come yeah. over to the there hangar. Here's the keys. How do you mean readily available? and how? Because I can't even imagine how you'd go about finding one. Craigslist. <laughs> they have everything. They do. Literally everything. Well, they they do. They're flying homes, basically. There there are a couple of missing elements, such as a shower room and and a uh, clothes washer. But but jetliners are basically flying homes, which address all the needs we have as human beings. Um, and and the odd thing is that they retire at the rate of about three per day. So every day a, a modern jetliner retires from service. So they're not readily available in the sense of. Of, of being able to drive into an ordinary city and, and order one off the shelf. And yet they are available in the sense that, that they're retired at a three-per-day rate. So if one uh, if an individual takes a little initiative and, and makes contact with uh, either the airliners directly or with a boneyard um, looking for an airliner which has already been retired from service, then um, with with uh, a little bit of effort, they are readily available. Three a day, that's remarkable. So these boneyards must be huge. Well, they, they are, but a lot of airliners are, are scrapped relatively uh, rapidly after they're retired simply because people are not buying them. They're, they're they don't have them. They're junked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, how, so you got, somehow you went to a scrapyard or a, a retiree place for airplanes. A boneyard. A boneyard, yes. Got this airplane. How did you, where was that place and how did you get it to Oregon? Well, I partnered with a salvage company called Aero Controls, which is based in Shelton, Washington. And uh, the partnership made sense to me at the time because it was geographically the closest salvage company I was aware of. Um, And the aircraft, in in our partnership, we established a, a contract so that our mutual needs would be addressed. And uh, logistically, in this particular case, the the um, most advantageous means of acquiring the aircraft was to have it ferried to Hillsboro, Oregon, which is near my rural land. So unlike their other aircraft salvage operations, which are flown to Washington, um, th- this one was handled in a unique manner. Did they fly it to Hillsboro Airport, or did they drive it? No, they flew it. It, it, My 727-200 is a narrow-body jet, but it's still big, and and it's uh, it's just impractical to haul 
long distances on on public roads and and might have been literally impossible. So when they de- decommission a plane like this or they retire a plane like this, they don't like dismantle the engines and take out the avionics. It's just sitting there ready to fly again if you want? Um, no. Uh, it, it depends on the nature of the partnership. In, in this case, my 727 was substantially um, salvaged, meaning that lots of components were removed, including the engines, the auxiliary power unit. Um, the aircraft was in, in large measure skeletonized. Um, and I can speak more about that later, but in the context of the way I viewed the project at that time, it seemed like the most um, efficient approach on an economic basis to establish my home. Um, the, the, the idea at that time was to allow a salvage operation to proceed to the point where it would begin to impact the integrity of, uh, of the living enclosure, but not beyond that point. I see. So the airplane was flown inside another airplane? Um, no, it was flown intact to Hillsboro, oh, and and then towed, yeah, and ve- very close to the Hillsboro Airport, but on different property. It was then salvaged by by aerial controls. I see. So you're um, you're in Hillsboro, which is rural, but you know there's still a lot of people around. Can you talk about the first neighbor that you went to talk to to say uh, <laughs> you're going to see something next week or tomorrow <laughs> or <laughs> whatever little time frame you wanted to give them notice? How did they kind of react to that? Well, uh, my neighbors on the east side, the Denfeld family, were very supportive and and necessarily so because there were elements of my rural property which were. Um, impractical to try to transport the aircraft on. So uh, their property was utilized as a as a thoroughfare from the nearest public road uh, to my property. They're, they're industrial farmers, and they, they have um, a large acreage of, of orchards, and we towed the aircraft onto their private drive from, from the public road, Holly Hill Road, and then through an orchard up to uh, up to my property, and and so they they were they, they were very um, good partners in the project, and and we had some amusing times, and they, and they've been supportive ever since. They they visit from time to time, and they they bring uh, friends or or business partners of their own and in their industry up to see my aircraft, and and we we've always had a very good relationship. Wow. Otherwise, though, the primary focus of of notifications was uh, to essentially unrelated people or, or people who are unrelated as neighbors. Um, we had to make, um, uh, to provide notification, for instance, to all the people along the route which the aircraft was towed upon in order to ensure that any ambulance needs or, or fire truck needs could be, um, could, could be addressed or at least understood prior to the move because the aircraft blocked the road all along the route during its tow. Hmm. So I have a question, um, two questions. I'm going to do a famous Michelle two-part question. Um, so first question He's is... He's an engineer. Um, he can take two questions. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to push me, I could probably do about four or five. Actually, I'm kind of really excited about this conversation because like, it could go in like almost any direction. He talked about using the, the mobile home as a tool um, you know, as something to live in and to get by and to sort of take you to the next place. Um, he talked about um, using the aircraft as a very unique but sustainable place to live long term. There's a lot of similarity there. And now we're venturing into the moving and zoning conversation. 
but I digress. Um, okay, question number one. We talked about finances. Um, how much did it cost you all in from the first check to the last one? Uh, once you got all your propane hooked up and your toilets and everything and got it moved and salvaged and everything you had to do. Uh, the second question is, uh, let's talk zoning. Um, are you, You're probably in the in the county, Washington County, as opposed to, to Hillsborough. Um what did the county say? Did you ask permission? Did you ask forgiveness? Um, talk about talk about that process. Okay. Well, um, just a little note: no pro, uh, no propane is involved. My my home is um, served by electric, and and that's sufficient. Um, the total costs for this project have um, uh, come to about two hundred and twenty thousand dollars, perhaps two hundred thirty. I I never accounted for costs in a highly disciplined manner. So so there's a, <laughs> a, a fair amount of, of uncertainty margin involved. Uh, those costs are not necessarily reflective of what one needs to spend. And I learned a great deal during the course of execution of the project, um, including how to avoid waste, which I didn't understand <laughs> in, the, in the midst of the project. So, so a considerable amount of money was wasted. I spent $100,000 for the purchase of the aircraft itself. And then the remainder, about one hundred twenty to one hundred thirty thousand dollars, was spent for logistics, and my, in my estimation, at least half of that was waste. So it, uh, the the logistics, even for a relatively long distance move, such as mine was, um, were uh, need not have been that expensive. Wow! So you didn't go to uship dot com. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, a, a, a wonderful individual named Wayne Grippen moved my aircraft for me, and he, he was terrific. He provided great value for the dollar. Unfortunately, he's gone. He died of a sudden heart attack, and that's a real shame because he was a very valuable resource. Wow. Um, but but I know of others, and and th- this can be done. It, it requires a considerable planning um, element, but it's it's doable. So it sounds like you're a, you're an enthusiast for everyone living in an airplane home. Well, I, I'm enthusiastic from the heart. I think this is a good concept. And, and forgive me, Michelle, I didn't mean to skip over your other question with regard to the county and so on. But um, uh, but but uh, tr- trying to get to that, um, aerospace technology is a, is a remarkably interesting and 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 practically beneficial environment to live within. It's um, it's a very high order of engineering. It provides some very serious advantages to anyone who wants a, a high performance type um, environment. Like what? Uh, well, um, resistance to wind, for example. Uh, air jetliners are native to 500 to 600 mile per hour winds, so one need not worry about tornadoes or hurricanes or or, or any other kind of wind event. Um, with the exception of ancillary things, such as in my in my environment, for example, wind blowing a tree down. If, if a large tree falls on my jetliner, then I've got a different kind of problem on my hands. Yeah, um, trees don't typically fall on jetliners. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's they engineered the other way around. I, I don't think that they engineered them that that, that from that perspective. Indeed. And um, earthquake um, immunity, that, that is, uh, aircraft landing gear are, are designed to take hits which are beyond any kind of earthquake the earth can dish out. So if properly supported, which unfortunately my home isn't yet. I was going to ask, 
the the pylons or whatever. Oh. <laughs> I just showed Michelle a picture of have you seen it? A picture of how your airplane is um what it's sitting on. It looks like a bunch of pallets actually. It looks like the, yeah, it's a little, looks a little temporary there. Yeah, it's it's not in in um, in proper form yet, and, and they're not pilots, but railroad ties. <laughs> but but they have reached the end of their lives, and and getting proper supports under the left main gear and the nose gear is a primary ambition. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to achieve that this year until the weather closed, which it has already. So I have to wait until next spring before we can make serious project on those elements. Interesting. So can you just pour a pour? Well, actually, we're going to get back to my other question before. Uh, yeah, See, I'm just so excited, this conversation. Um, okay, <laughs> so we're going to get back to the zoning question. So yeah. this is something that you um, presu- that you would have in common with a lot of the tiny house enthusiasts. One of the big um, uh, barriers to actually the tiny house movement taking off. Uh, <laughs> I'm full of them. I was prepping. I was prepping for this interview. Um, On a wing and a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, is zoning and and having the counties and the cities um, allow for this out of the box thinking? So, um, can, yeah, can we circle back? Indeed, we can, and and that's <laughs> it's called a that, that's a challenge which I really haven't met head on yet. Um, I I was fortunate in as much as as best I perceive it, the the county and city folks. Um, and and other agencies, there, there were lots of different elements of of governmental administrations involved because of the complexities of of the transport challenge. Um, they, they were all excited about the concept, and everything happened very fast. It, it had to. So um, I I think I benefited from the excitement element infusing their hearts um, in the early stages, and by the time more serious questions arose, the aircraft was already on my property. So um, a, certain, uh, a, a certain inevitability of, of completion took place before, um, before the, the more strict elements, the more kibishi elements uh, took root. Um, and in many regards, it was a done deal by that time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are they going to do, make you exactly. move it? <laughs> Yeah. Or actually, you could just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of money, I can't move it, so guess you're going to have to move it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it's, um, it, it is something which has to be addressed in the future, and I, I do live in the aircraft, of course, and, and I feel very comfortable here, um, but um, I don't have everything I should have for a person who's living in a dwelling, and, and by strict legal interpretation, the county could simply kick me out. And that could happen someday, I suppose. But um, my sense is that they're being practical about the matter, and I'm grateful for that, of course. Um, but at some time, we'll, we'll have to address those challenges. My guess is that we'll do it through a combination of grandfathering certain structural elements of the aircraft, which can't practically be changed um, as, as a, by, by looking at it as a mobile home. That, that is... There, there are certain zoning requirements, or, or I should say, building requirements, which a new structure might might have to meet, but an old structure, which has moved onto the property, might not have to meet because it's considered basically a mobile home. But I don't know. We we have yet to address those challenges in a in a formal manner. So so we'll see how that unravels. But in the meantime, things happen fast, and 
And for people who are executing tiny homes, one of the things I, I might recommend, if if you believe in the concept from the heart and you believe that you've thought everything through carefully, um, introduce it quickly and execute it quickly. And if the if the administrative folks get caught up in the excitement of it, you might benefit from that. That's what we're hoping. Exactly. <laughs> if I could speak on behalf of the entire movement, that's what we're hoping. We're hoping we have enough momentum right now, and there are enough of them built, being built quickly and and thoughtfully. And uh, that we're addressing those issues. Um, and again, every, hopefully everybody get ca- gets caught up in it with us. The exploratory fever is a good thing. It, it's a constructive element of, of human experience. And, and um, it sometimes runs counter to, uh, to provincial thinking. Yep. And, and, uh, and, and the, that just has to be, um, has to be um, challenged head on, I think. For humanity to make progress, we have to think out of the box, and and uh, and we do make progress that way. And and I think even even the most strict hearts in, in in the provincial thinking community do occasionally understand that vision, and it, it just has to be addressed in a in a, in a civil manner and in a productive manner. And and my experience so far is that uh, is that practical minds tend to prevail. This is way out the box, though. It doesn't even look like a box. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the functionality um, on, on the interior of the aircraft? Um, have you added walls and, and individual living spaces? Um, talk about, of course, your, your, your waste management. Do you have a composting toilet? Are you, are you hooked up to sewer? Um, talk a little bit about your day-to-day uh, living and how it relates to the floor plan. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, actually, there's a there's a reason why I do that. By the way, guys, I don't know that I've ever explained that to you. Um, sometimes I think that when you ask really short, off the cuff questions, it takes people kind of a little bit by surprise. Um, so if you give them a little bit of time to think about what the direction that you want them to go, um, it gives them time to respond. So well, there's my official defense for my <laughs> you don't have defense. for my quirk. <laughs> it works for me. Okay. And then jetliners are indeed flying homes. Most of the things that we need are already built into a jetliner. And though I partnered with a salvage company, I never recommend that anymore. I, I recommend that folks chat with airlines directly and, and acquire their their future home directly from an airline with no salvage. Hmm. Um, I, I would not repeat the process that I utilized in my first project again. Why is not that? Even close. Why is that? Well, the salvage... Um, process is directly counter to a homeowner's interest. Mm-hmm. There, there's an inherent conflict there, and, and and looking back on it, I I I see it so clearly, and it seems so stupid. The the, the way I executed this project seems um, c- completely ignorant of the realities that 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 a salvage company and a homeowner have in mind. Now, a homeowner wants an intact, healthy environment. And a salvage company wants to rip and tear and, and get their parts and yeah. and leave precious little else. And th- those those visions, those needs are in direct conflict, and you just can't inherently resolve that. And 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 it, it's really not necessary. At, at the rate of three per day, um, jetliners are available. Yeah. And there, there's really no need to partner with a salvage company, irrespective of their appreciation of the vision. Their needs are just in in conflict. Mm-hmm. So, so I I recommend avoiding that completely. It's not necessary. 
Um, and if, if you start with a healthy jetliner, you have a complete electrical system, complete lighting system, complete climate control system, complete security system. The list goes on. The, the only thing you're missing really is minor modifications necessary for the toilets to work with domestic water pressure, a shower, um, a, a clothes washer, and I, I suppose a dishwasher and a conventional-sized refrigerator, but not much else. But then you have row upon row of those very uncomfortable seats. <laughs> Depending on the airline. I guess. <laughs> you ain't sleeping in those. Exactly. Yeah, well, uh, and, and that was exacerbated in my case because it was an all-economy cabin. There was no first class, no business class. It was strictly economy. <laughs> However, most of them are gone. You know, I, I, I retain about seven rows of seats, and, and uh, those are now being shuffled around to support concert on a wing needs. But, um, but to go back to Michelle's question, I, I did not incorporate walls. I... I'm uh, I'm I'm a bachelor. I I live a social life, but uh, for the most part, I have no need for walls. Hmm. You are no... you. So you are um, you're an engineer. Uh, yes. Do you work for someone else, or are you self-employed? I'm self-employed and and have been for quite a long time, um, and I don't do much active engineering work. Um, in, in the course of earning an income in a direct sense now. I'm, I'm an investor now. I, I earn more money investing than I can engineering or, or with direct engineering. So I, I apply the skills that I learned through engineering to investing, and, and that's been fruitful for me. Awesome. And so what, what, do you, what do you spend your time doing besides talking to people about your airplane? Well, um, <laughs> though I enjoy conversations like this immensely, um, most of my time is spent either in my investing pursuits or in pursuit of the second project, the Boeing 747-400 project. But there are ancillary things that I attend to as well, and and the concert on a wing concept, which has just taken flight to, to repeat Michelle's and, and and other related activities uh, take my time, too. There, there's a world of things to do, a universe, really, of things to do, and, and they're all very engaging. So tell us, some of, sorry, tell us some of those things. Like, what is this wing uh, concert on a wing? Yeah. Well, it, it's an interesting concept, and um, <clears throat> uh, it, we, we just held our first concerts about two weeks ago. Um, a wonderful cellist named Tessa Seymour performed in my fuselage. The, the weather was too inclement, and it was a nighttime performance, so, so we did it in the fuselage. Um, but Yuko Pomli-san and, and her partner, uh, Haruyuki-san, performed on my wing on a beautiful Friday, again about two weeks ago, and, and, uh, uh, and, and that was an amazing experience, uh, and also on, on the following Saturday. So uh, in the concept on a wing concept is for the artist to render their their music on one of the wings of the aircraft while um, guests enjoy it from in front of the wing or around the aircraft in general. It, it's a unique venue and it's fun and it it provides for what uh, for the needs of the musician by giving them a stage um, and and placing them a little bit above the guest level. Mm -hmm. And, and it's fun for the guests because they have a jetliner uh, venue to enjoy the concert from, and it's 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 interesting. Um, and, 
and there there are little ancillary elements which which give it uh, additional fun too. Like what? Um, well, the access to the cabin of the aircraft provides an, a unique stage entrance, so so the artist can exit the backstage area by um, entering the wing from a wing exit, an emergency exit. And, and that's fairly simple. It's easy to visualize, I suppose, but it is fun. And, and uh, I, I don't think anything like that occurs in any other concert venue. Do they get to jump down those slides that deploy out the doors? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. So that, how, that could be done. I, <laughs> I, I still retain two of the slides, and it could be done, although it's uh, it's a considerable challenge to refold oh, and then recharge the slides. <laughs> that's, long, for, that's for middle school tours. Exactly. He's reserving that process for the middle school <laughs> exactly. tours. How long have you been doing these concerts? Well, the first was just about two weeks ago. Oh. Um, Tessa's concert came about rather abruptly, um, not not causing, not, not, uh, not, uh, in any negative way, it's just that the, her concert. She had a considerable tour, and addition of my aircraft came at a, I, I assume, a relatively late stage in in planning that tour, and and so everything happened quite fast. And uh, Yukosan and I had talked about this for at least a couple of years, a lot longer than that, I think. And we wanted to ensure that she had a chance to join the fun, and and in a in a sequence which recognized our mutual history and development of the concept. So her concept was even more hastily arranged, and uh, and, and she and, and uh, uh, Haruyuki-san uh, flew from Tokyo um, on very abrupt notice so that she could perform. So our first was just a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was fun. Um, the, the, everyone had a wonderful time, and, and although some things were rough because everything was so hastily arranged, uh, we learned a lot, and and everything worked. That, that is, the concerts were well played, and and everyone had a good time. Is this something you're planning to do on a regular basis? And are yeah, you going to charge is. money or? Um, well, to an extent, um, uh, Tessa's concert, for example, you know, was was charged normal uh, in, in the normal manner with with all of her performances, um, and uh, Yuko-san's concert was uh, contribution based. Uh, venue, but everybody contributed as, as best I can tell, and, and and they were very generous to do that. It wasn't obliged, but yeah, it'll be an ongoing event. Um, and uh, and concertonawing.com exists as the website to support it, and also the Japanese version, Subasa no Onkaku Kai. And uh, you know, we we plan to extend this and and embellish it very considerably with the 747. Project in Miyazaki. How was the uh, what was the audience number look like on that? Well, everything was very hastily arranged and short uh, notice was very short. Um, but in Tessa's concert, the place was packed. We we filled every seat and then some. It was standing room only with you know, with a, a fair number of people standing to hear a concert. Wow. Um, with with Yuko-san's concert, um, nobody was there on Friday, but that was kind of a warm up and. And, and a, an equipment checkout day, and advertised as such. Um, but I got a personal concert out of out, out of the day, and and it's an, a cherished experience which I'll remember all my life very fondly, as I will the other uh, concert performed on Saturday, which is attended by very roughly 20 people, and Tessa's concert, which was packed. They, they were all cherished memories now. 
That's great. Well, it was a wing and a prayer. So exactly. You made it happen. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, I'm um, researching online. No. Yeah. <laughs> <Giant> <laughs> <tons. Exactly. laughs> so you you're you're planning to do this same uh, living situation in Miyazaki in Japan with a 747. Yes. Now, um, Japan is known for having a premium of land availability, not very much land availability. How are you putting as something as big as a 747 in Japan to live in? Yeah, that, that's a challenge. You know, it's a, it's a very dense country, and um, fortunately, Miyazaki is a bit off the beaten path. It's it's on the lowest island of Kyushu, and the southeastern region of Kyushu. It's uh, Miyazaki is a city of about three hundred and thirty thousand people. Um, but it's a city of rural character. It, it's um, it, it's uh, it, it's not adjoined by other cities of similar size, and so it, it's there's a little more elbow room there, but it's still tight, and and so finding suitable land is a significant challenge. But we have two or three good prospects, and and uh, we're currently in the study stage, and uh, and I. I'm, I'm fond of both of our primary prospects now, but a lot more work needs to be done to determine whether they will play out. What is, what is your tie with Japan? Why Japan? Oh, I simply love it there. I, I, it, it's a remarkably civilized place in my experience. Um, people are very intelligent and, and healthy and fit, um, exploratory-minded. Uh, they, they have a wonderful time. In, in my experience, Japanese people really know how to enjoy life. They're very practical. Um, there's almost no accolade I can think of which doesn't seem to apply. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm an American. I, I love my country, especially the, the roots of America. Um, but at this stage in my life, I prefer Japan. So you're planning to move there and stay there? Well, I hope to. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. There, there are a lot of questions in the air, um, and um, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. There, yeah. no pun intended. <laughs> um, and I don't know what will play out, but I live about half time there now, and and I hope that um, partially lubricated by the the next project, I'll be able to obtain a permanent residence or perhaps even a citizenship. Although it may be beneficial to to live the rest of my life as a, as a permanent resident rather than a citizen. Why is we'll that? see. Well, financially, you know, fi- financially, you know, I, I love Nippon. I, I love the country, but it's, it's also a high tax country as America is. And, and for capital gains, um, it's, you know, it, it's not necessarily the best logistics for, uh, for passport ownership. So I'll, I'll have to see how that plays out, but, um, but there, there, there are lots of other factors involved, so you know, I, I, I'm not sure how it will work out. A couple quick questions unrelated. One, I don't know, left field question kind of too, but as kind of a professional investor now, is there a industry or category that you're focused on? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an electrical engineer, and, and I only invest in things I think I understand. And for the most part, I don't understand anything. So I, <laughs> I try, <laughs> I try to narrow my focus down to uh, you know a couple Widget. percent. Widget.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the second question, not really, uh, kind of unrelated, I guess. But so when the when the airlines sell their three planes or get rid of their three planes a day, so usually do they have to? You, you paid them a hundred grand. Do, do they usually have to pay to dispose of the plane? Hmm. Is that an expense for them? Well, I don't know how it works out on average, 
but I think it's pretty close to a wash except for the engines. The engines are usually not at retirement age when the airframe is ready to be retired, in in part because airframes are not really ready to be retired physically, but they are in terms of technology advancement. And in earlier times, airframes were flown until they until the rivets became loose, to to <laughs> to, to use the term very loosely. Wow. Um, but but these days, fuel efficiency gains are happening at such a rapid pace that they're being retired before mm. they're they're physically before it's physically necessary for them to retire. 747s are a great case in point. They're great birds. Uh, the 747-400 in particular is a remarkable jetliner, but they're being retired simply because a four-engine aircraft can't compete effectively with a two-engine aircraft. Yeah. So, you know, the 777, for example, is, is a preferred overseas hauler, and it, it, just, it, can, it can cross the Pacific or the Atlantic with, uh, with a bit less fuel than a 747 has, uh, can. Wow. So conversions are taking place. My, my sense is, now, for example, if one goes to Wikipedia and reads the page for the 747-400 in particular, they state that once the engines are removed, the airframe has essentially zero value. Wow. The, the inference is that it costs as much to shred it as the scrap materials are then worth. Correct. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. So that's why they boneyard it, basically, and just drop it in the middle of a chunk of land owned by, like, the feds? Or what happens? Well, um, many boneyards are privately owned, and... Oh. and uh, Boneyard space is not free, uh, so a, a lot of them are simply shredded. For example, the last 747-400 to leave Nippon um, flew. They, they filled the tanks with gas, or, or nearly so, and and then flew it to America to be shredded, and it was promptly shredded. So it, it's odd. It, uh, you know, the, a, a, a wing full of, of gas or two wings full of gas was utilized just to get the aircraft to a place where it could be economically shredded. Wow. God damn it, that's a big shredder. It is a huge shredder. So you spend a lot of time in, in Japan, and that means your aircraft here in Oregon sits empty half the time? Or do you rent it out yeah. on Airbnb? Um, do, you, do you host... Um, how do, do you have guests over um, when you're there? How, how do you utilize it other than your own private residence? It's and the empty. concert. It's empty. Yeah, yeah it's empty, and, and that's a shame. You know, it's a, it's a real shame. It's a terrific living environment, and it's empty. Um, it's, um, uh, I, I am moving toward utilization while I'm in, in Japan, and, and um, it, it's a dicey proposition. You, one, one has to have a relationship of, of very great trust in order yeah. to hand over the keys for significant lengths of time. And um, and and beyond trust, it also there also needs to be a, a sufficient matching of lifestyles and and personal hygiene and and all, all sorts of elements in order to feel comfortable with that kind of a relationship. So I haven't established it yet, but but I do have a couple of prospects in mind, and and at some point I have to pass the torch anyway. If if the 747 project is successful, and there are no guarantees of that, but. But if it is successful, I'll have to find someone to take the torch for this project. Hmm. So the, a 747 seems like a big spatial leap from the 727. What are you going to do with all that space? Yeah, it, it is. It's um, the, the, This aircraft has um, 99 square meters of floor space in the cabin area, 
which equates to about 1,066 square feet, okay. whereas the 747-400 in the cabin areas has 4,500 oh. square feet. And that excludes the cargo areas, which are much larger than the 727. There's nothing tiny about that. No, there's nothing tiny about it. It's like a mansion. There's nothing (laughs) tiny about that. But I can only imagine the architectural, uh, you know, park. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a big bird, and it's it's a real beauty. You know, you you cannot stand next to a 747-400, particularly if it's out of its native airport environment, without your draw dropping to the ground. It's, it's just a remarkable bird to behold. Wow. Well, we can tell that you really are passionate about this field. <laughs> I believe in it very strongly. I, and tell, I, yeah. you know, I, I think there will come a time when all of those three per day which are retired will be fully utilized. How? It's just a question. Pardon me? How? Well, um, by establishing the means of converting them into useful dwellings, as an efficient business. Yeah. In, you know, in many regards, humanity is only one small step away from that now, but remains unconvinced. The boneyards are basically death camps. Yeah. Aircraft are flown there to die, and, and that's a shame. But an alternate concept, which is really pretty close to the way boneyards are utilized now, is to fly them into the, the large tract of land, but then rather than shredding them, taxi them to a roughly three-acre green area, connect the water, connect the sewer, connect the electricity using the standard Boeing ramp connectors or Airbus ramp connectors, and um, and, and, and then move in a, re- a standard-sized refrigerator, modify the lavatories with, with a Boeing 747-400 as, just as an example. You then have a 4,500-square-foot aerospace-quality castle and, and essentially for free. Wow. So, That's true. You know, so the, I, I think there will come a day when we have large jetliner home development parks. Wow. And we thought tiny houses were exactly. on the edge. <laughs> exactly. We thought tiny houses were thinking outside the box. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much um, for, I mean, again, I started off this conversation in my own head wondering how much commonality that that there would be, but I think in general all the the concepts, everything you touched on, we yeah. all of our listeners have in common, you know, and yeah. that's you know challenging the status quo, um, thinking outside the the box a little bit, um, pushing the envelope um, from a zoning and regulatory perspective, um, being very creative about okay, now I've done this, now what else can I do to further you know further the visibility and further the enjoyment of the yep. space and the architecture. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you very 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 much although unfortunately i didn't get to use my mile high club pun oh, <laughs> sorry the conversation well, didn't go there so anything good. can be arranged <laughs> ah there we go oh, and, and i failed to address your right question there. about <laughs> sewer um but my guess is that we're out of time yeah. um can i mention my website airplanehome.com say, you know, say okay, it again. airplanehome.com what was you know. that you cut out you oh i'm sorry <laughs> Yeah, airplanehome.com. Awesome. Okay, Yay. listeners, go check it out. Bruce, thank, thank you so much for being with us. And um, yep. Tiny Housers, uh, check us out next week where we're going to be talking with Tiny Digs Hotel, the second tiny house hotel in Portland. Yeah, it's actually, we're going to do an on-site interview with them. Um, I met them last week. They're looking forward to it very much, and and it's going to be fun. We don't get to do on-site interviews very much, nope, so, so that'll be a fun one.
And who knows, Bruce might have us come out and do a tiny house podcast on the wing of an airplane. That would be interesting. What do you think about that, Bruce? Yeah, you're absolutely welcome to do that. I encourage it. I think you'd have fun. I think your listeners would enjoy it, too. Absolutely. That would be fun. We could just, the price of admission is a, like I do with my tiny house, the price of admission is a bottle of wine. There you go. They can throw it, <laughs> throw it at us. I was wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Our bad jokes. We'll restock your wine cellar there, Bruce. <laughs> well, it would be a treat to have you, so I, I hope that it can be arranged. Okay, Bruce. Well, Thanks, thank Bruce. you so much. And Tiny House listeners, we'll check you out next week uh, for another exciting episode. Bye. Bye. See you Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Main. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. 